0: Roger Penrose has cut a unique figure in the world of science for over six decades. A first-class mathematician, he's been a font of ideas in theoretical physics too, many of them controversial. Not interested in following convention or in blindly jumping on bandwagons, Penrose is very much an independent thinker, quite content to swim against the tide. He is perhaps most famous among physicists for his brilliant contributions to developing Einstein's theory of gravity and for pioneering our modern understanding of black holes, partly in collaboration with his friend Stephen Hawking, who first learned several critically important mathematical techniques directly from Penrose. My name is Graham Farmlow, and I'm the author of The Universe Speaks in Numbers, which features quite a few experts who've contributed to both mathematics and physics, including Roger Penrose. He's been extremely helpful to me, not only giving me interviews, but also by checking my account of the renaissance of Einstein's theory of gravity in the 1950s to 60s, and of Roger's invention of the mathematical objects he named twisters. He sometimes calls them my babies. Last year, I went along to the sleekly designed mathematical institute at the University of Oxford, where Penrose has long been based. Now in his late 80s, he's still a lively, enthusiastic and urbane man. In the interview you're about to hear, he gives us many insights into his early career and into the path he took to becoming a kind of hybrid mathematician-physicist. He also describes how he got involved in modern gravity theory and his relationship with Stephen Hawking, briefly depicted in the entertaining Oscar-winning movie A Theory of Everything. As we shall hear, the movie doesn't always get its facts right. First, Penrose talked about his early career, beginning with his entry to university in the early 1950s.
1: Well, I took mathematics at University College London for my undergraduate work, and that Met pure and applied mathematics, because that's what mathematics was in England, yeah. not in all countries. And yeah, I concentrated, I think, most on the geometry, to some degree on the algebra. Mm-hmm. I, I got fascinated by Lagrange's equations, I thought they were amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't quite take off with regard to physics at that stage or, or applied mathematics. So, what attracted you into cosmology, astrophysics? Well, I would area? say a couple of things going way back to my father when he he showed me Saturn through a telescope. Mm. (laughs) Seeing it's really out there Mm. made a huge impression on me. My older brother Oliver Mm. had interested me in the, in the physics and he read to me the Gamow books uh, oh, yes. uh, the, Mr. Tompkins the in Tompkins Wonderland yeah. Yeah. and yeah. Mr. Tompkins, Tompkins,
0: Tompkins, and, uh, what, Mr. Tompkins yeah.
1: Explores yeah. the Atom and they made a big impression me too but anyway that's a small point it was mainly I went to Cambridge to do my graduate work mm-hmm. and while I was still an undergraduate, I can't remember whether it was the last year or the penultimate year, mm. I heard a series of lectures on the radio given by Fred Hoyle. Oh. Now those talks started off with sort of fairly local about the various planets and things and he got further out. And finally in that last talk he talked about the steady state model. Mm-hmm. And In this talk, he talked about, well, these galaxies, you know, move faster and faster away from us. At a certain point, they exceed the speed of light, and then they disappear, and you can't see them anymore. Something like that, Mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite believe that, and I drew some pictures with light cones and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I, for some reason, was going up to Cambridge, and I was visiting my brother, Oliver, and we were having lunch in the kingswood restaurant and i was saying well i've been listening to these talks by fred hoyle and he said this strange thing about the galaxies disappearing off the edge and so on and so oliver said to me said well look i don't really know about cosmology but sitting on the table just over there is a good friend of mine and he knows about all about cosmology that was dennis Sharma. oh my goodness so i sat down next to dennis Sharma, yeah. and i explained him my problems about the galaxy but you hadn't met him before i'd never met him before yeah. Oh, grief. Yeah. And uh, I think Dennis was quite impressed by me drawing these light cones and things like that, <laughs> and the argument that somehow they would fade out rather than just mm-hmm. turn off, you mm-hmm. see. The, mm-hmm. the impression that Fred had given on the talks that as soon as they exceeded the speed of light, pong, they would be off, you mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they wouldn't, they would fade away and they'd still sort of be in view all the time. Mm-hmm. You just track back how oh, your light cone intersects these things. I had a, a picture of the steady-state model, which was pretty well Mm -hmm. what it looks like. And uh, I think it must have impressed Dennis. He said, well, he'd go and check with Fred, you see. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't quite know what happened to that. But then, either in a year and a half or a year, I actually went to Cambridge as a graduate student, Mm -hmm. and I was working on the Hodge. Oh, what, the mathematician Hodge? Yes. All ah, right. So, because he was supervisor for Michael O'Tear as He was he? indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I should tell you, you see, there were four people, graduate students, in, in Hodges' group. Mm-hmm. One of them gave up very quickly. Mm-hmm. One of them stuck with it, and he did a decent thesis, and then decided to work in history of science or mm-hmm. philosophy mm-hmm. of science. That was mm-hmm. Michael Hoskin.
0: Oh, yes, at Churchill College, Cambridge
1: uh-huh mm-hmm. yes that's michael hoskin anyway no i haven't seen him for ages mm-hmm. but anyway then at one point there was a particular problem i started working on that hodge had listed the only he gave a list of problems the only one I could more or less understand i decided i'd look at you see mm-hmm. and at one point hodge was saying he thought perhaps i was a little uncomfortable about what i was doing maybe i would like to sit in on the other graduate student there so I did. I went and sat in on the supervision of the other chap and I didn't understand a single word of what's going on. Mm. It was totally over my head. and I thought, my God, if they're all like this, what am I doing here? Yeah, yeah. Of course, that was Michael Atiyah. Uh, right. Michael Atiyah was the fourth in the group. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I now it's all clear. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes.
1: So uh, yeah. well, I became good friends with Michael yes, at that I point. Know, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I learned a lot from him, clearly. But there were a lot of very good people there who I learned things from on the mathematics side. But it was Dennis who really introduced me to all that was going on in physics, not just the steady-state cosmology, which he was a great proponent of, Mm. but he knew everything that was going on. Mm. And he knew... Everything and more or less everybody as well. Mm. And apart from, you know, just firing people up, which mm. he did. He yep. was excellent oh, at yeah. that. But he was extremely good at getting people together who might be of use to each oh, other oh, right. Great teacher by the sound of that. <coughs> he was, yes. Mm. He, and he was an excellent lecturer, too, yes. And so I gained a lot from him. I remember we used to go, he would often want to go to see the plays at Stratford. Oh, and so Shakespeare, he, Shakespeare's. Shakespeare yeah. plays. Mm. And he mm. would... Uh, drive me there with him he would like to talk with me about all the what was going on physics Mm -hmm. he seemed to get a lot of talking to me and i got a lot out of him talking to him it was certainly the case and he used to drive his car at great speed i think he had a jaguar Mm -hmm. at that point around these sort of roads going around the hills and at great speed, and you would get thrown to the side of the car. So, well, that's the action of the fixed stars, he would say. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his view of, you know, Marx's principle. So we kept discussing about things. Well, suppose you annihilated the stars one by one, and mm-hmm. then the Earth would be our frame, and then you annihilate the Earth, and it's the mm-hmm. car you see. And so I began thinking about this. Well, suppose you got down to two particles. Suppose they're two electrons or something. Mm-hmm. How do they know which way they're spinning and so on? Mm-hmm. So this this was basically the origin of spin networks. Mm-hmm. You take things down to really basic levels and see how you could get your rotation frame and how does that make sense in relation to quantum mechanics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So that was that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I got an awful lot out of Dennis. It wasn't just that. Do, do
0: you think he regarded you as a mathematician or do you think he just saw you as another student, not, not a specialist? I anymore?
1: think he had a broader understanding of that. Okay. Um, I think he realized I had some kind of physical understanding. Mm. And... Um, he, he took me under his wing, absolutely did. And he was trying to convince me that I should give up my mathematics oh. and to study cosmology instead. I said, Well look, I've you know, a lot of things I really like and interested in this subject, so I'll just I'll finish off my thesis. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't as simple as just finishing my thesis. The story got more complicated in various ways. But then I eventually got back and went to Cambridge again as a this time as a fellow. Mm-hmm. And there was a very interesting occasion when Dennis, uh, explaining how he was good at getting people to get together, and he said that there was a talk being given in London by somebody who was going to talk about the Schwarzschild singularity. And this was a talk by David Finkelstein, explaining how you use the coordinates that are now referred to as the Eddington-Finkelstein coordinates, and you can get your way through the horizon, and it's not a singularity. And I remember being very impressed by this. Two strands at this. One thing was that I talked afterwards to David about spin networks. And David also used to comment afterwards that we kind of swapped subjects at that point. Because he went on and did combinatorial physics. And then I went on to general relativity, (laughs) you see.
0: Three lecturers especially impressed Penrose when he was a graduate student. First, the mathematical cosmologist Herman Bondi. Second, the logician S.W.P. Steen. And finally, the theoretical physicist Paul Dirac. Penrose was especially fascinated by spinners, the mathematical object that appears in Dirac's most famous equation, which describes the way that an electron behaves using relativity and quantum mechanics. Committed though Penrose was to mathematics research, he was, as he put it, soon sucked into the relatively little explored world of Einstein's theory of gravity otherwise known as the General Theory of Relativity. It was then undergoing a resurgence, led by the great American theoretician John Wheeler and his associates.
1: I was interested for a long time in General Relativity, but my interest in it as something I might work on myself Mm. came with the spinners. Mm. And then I wrote this paper for Annals of Physics on spinners. But then you see that you were asking about black holes. Mm. I think I made various visits to Princeton. I went to Princeton after I think just two years of my fellowship, because Dennis said, well, you must go and work with Wheeler's group because mm, he, mm. his crazy ideas look like yours, more yeah, or less, yeah, in yeah, some yeah, respects. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. And so I, I wrote a, a screed which I sent to Wheeler. I'm putting down all sorts of crazy things I was thinking of. And I think Wheeler couldn't make head or tail of it. And he gave it to Charlie Misner to say, should we take this chap seriously? Mm-hmm. And Charlie Misner said, yes, take him. Mm-hmm. So I went to Princeton on this NATO fellowship. And I learned a lot of... Physics, there you see because general relativity in England at the time was very much a mathematical activity yeah. you were finding all sorts of funny solutions which may or may not have anything to do with the world but mm-hmm. there were solutions of the Einstein equations and you could play around with them and so on but it was still mathematical play but when in Princeton it was a real physics community mm-hmm. and so I picked up a little bit of that I wouldn't say how much but I certainly picked up a bit of that and uh, Charlie Misner I got a lot from. I remember the first day when I went there. Um, Wheeler was introducing the people. Said, "Let me introduce you to to." to um, Reggie and Dickie. And I thought, well, gosh, that's awfully you know, chummy first names for somebody who's a little bit aloof and so on. Mm. And of course, I didn't realize Reggie was Tulio Reggie. And Dickie was Bob, Robert Dickie. But you were asking me about the black holes. That came about, I think, mainly because round about, it would be 1962, there was this great thing about the quasars. Martin Schmidt had discovered the first quasar. Mm-hmm. And this was the, the thing which was, looked like a sort of star mm-hmm. superficially, but with two things which were sort of almost inconsistent. One was it had a huge redshift. Well, I say huge, I mean big for something that you could see and look mm-hmm. like a star. Mm-hmm. A big redshift that you can take from the spectrum, and it varied within weeks the yeah. brightness. It went up and down, and and, and Mm -hmm. within a week it could change. And if it could be changing within a week, it would have to be, I mean, from its distance and its brightness... And how much energy was coming out, people thought, well, gosh, the rate of change of the brightness showed it couldn't be bigger than the solar system. Mm-hmm. Yet, there was this huge amount of energy being emitted. I remember, oh, huge numbers of people were excited about it. And there were arguments, like, is it a redshift? Is it a really, gravitational redshift? Is it really moving that fast away from us? Mm-hmm. Is it just a local velocity? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was not so clear for a while what was going on. But it did become clear that here was a huge source of energy in some way which seemed to indicate you had something there which was comparable to its Schwarzschild radius. Mm-hmm. And this was a point Wheeler was making. Mm-hmm. So and then he, there were lectures given by people, I can't remember who, on the Oppenheimer-Snyder model mm-hmm. of gravitational collapse to what we now call a black hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a dust cloud. Mm-hmm. And uh, more or less... At the same time, as this was being discussed, and Wheeler was very interested in, you know, is this a general, is it just a special case? Everything's focused towards that middle point. Suppose it was swishing around and not being symmetrical. Then stuff might miss each other and then come swirling out again. Mm-hmm. And what about the special dust which doesn't have any pressure? Maybe when it gets too close to itself, it'll push itself away. Mm-hmm. And How do you know this is representative at all? It wasn't clear, and it was even less clear because at that time there had been discussions about a paper by Lifshitz and Khalatnikov, mm-hmm. who appeared to have proved that in the general case you did not get singularities. Mm-hmm. Now I had a look at what they, their proof, and I thought, well, I didn't quite see how you're going to prove a thing using that kind of method. That's a sort mm-hmm. of, you know, it's a more general statement. I didn't know. I mean, you could, maybe it's an indication. But I didn't know, Mm. and I began trying to think about it, and I went for walks in the woods and tried to imagine myself inside a black hole, and
0: (laughs) how could the singularities not sort of bounce back? At Birkbeck College in London, Penrose had a breakthrough after talking with the English mathematical physicist Ivor Robinson, who'd been working with gravity theorists in the United States.
1: I was at Birkbeck College in London. That was where I was teaching, and Ivor Robinson had come to visit from Dallas, Texas. This is where he, I mean, he's English very much, from Liverpool and with a very pronounced English accent, which they all loved in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was a very good talker and a very interesting, fascinating fellow. Did some very interesting things in G.A.R. too. But anyway, we were talking away. I can't remember what exactly. And then we came to a cross street and the conversation stopped to that point because we had to look out for the traffic. Anyway. Then we got to the other side, and it started again. Ivor telling me all his latest things and all that stuff. And then when Ivor had left, I had this strange feeling of elation. I couldn't think what that was about. So I went back and said, you know, is it what I had for breakfast? That doesn't make sense. No, did he receive a letter of any interest? No, nothing like that. I went through the day. And then I remembered crossing the street I'd had this idea, mm-hmm. which I then uncovered at that point, which I think was the idea of a trapped surface. Mm-hmm. See, I wanted a criterion which doesn't depend on your collapse being symmetrical anyway, to a sort of topological thing, which, you know, you perturb it a little bit and the condition still holds. Mm-hmm. And it holds inside the Schwarzschild horizon. Mm-hmm. And this was this notion of a trapped surface. You have a closed two-surface, space-like two-surface, and the null normals, those are the null directions which are normal to it. And I realized this was a criterion that would probably enable me to prove what I wanted. So I went back to my office after mm-hmm. I have left, and I pretty well sketched out a proof mm-hmm. that this gave a singularity, mm-hmm. that you couldn't avoid it. The argument was a little uncomfortable in one part, I think it was in the autumn of 64 when I was talking to Ivor. I don't remember exactly when. Um, I wrote the thing up, sent it to PhysRev Letters. It was published in 65. I remember giving a lecture about it at King's College, and I was very proud to see that a great distinguished physicist there, not as the films say, Stephen Hawking, it was um, J.L. Singh. Oh, Mm -hmm. and uh, I gave this talk about the the singularities must be there, and I was a little bit disappointed by the argument because it only showed the singularities in the middle, and it didn't give you any feeling for what you could see outside. Um, But anyway, I think Singh was impressed enough. Uh, according to the movie, Stephen was there with this talk, and sparks coming out of his head or whatever it was, because he was being. He, uh, he wasn't there. He wasn't there.
0: Oh, dear. Oh, dear.
1: But, but it's not quite as bad as you might think, mm-hmm. because Dennis Sharma heard about the lecture and he said, Well, you must come and give a repeat up at Cambridge. Ah. So I did give yeah, one I at Cambridge. See, yeah. so I was in London at Birkbeck at this mm-hmm. time, but I gave the Cork and Kings. And uh, I went up to, to Cambridge in in 65. And Stephen was there, and I talked privately to Stephen and George Ellis Aye. afterwards and explained the details of how he did all this stuff and mm-hmm. so that Stephen was able to pick up on the general lines of argument right. from that.
0: Because he was um, Dennis' student as well, wasn't he? He was, right.
1: that's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. I can't remember quite what George Ellis' role, maybe it was just at the same college as Stephen.
0: Well, you were one of the examiners of Stephen from oh, yeah. PhD, weren't yeah, you? Oh,
1: yeah, that's right. Were you in the movie? There was a, a gentleman in the movie who's with my name, yes. Right,
0: okay. I've forgotten whether you... Whether you
1: okay. <laughs> but he was a bit peculiar because the actual viva for, for Stephen's thesis was not like anything would happen in actuality. Oh. First of all, because there were three examiners, Dennis Sharma, myself, those were correct, we were, yeah. and Kip Thorne. Where did he come from? I don't know, they just thought he would like to put him in the movie, I suppose. Also, oh, he,
0: wasn't, he wasn't there, but... No. He wouldn't have. Well, been. he probably advised it. He probably was advisor to the movie or something. Oh, he might have advised the I movie. Know, I have no idea. That would have been quite a threesome, but uh, yeah.
1: No, Kip Thorne was certainly not there. Mm-hmm. No yeah. question about it. Okay. And there were certain errors in the thesis which I was, you know, going to point them out in the viva in the and point them out and say, well, Stephen had already noticed them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he had to correct these, and, but he did this by just putting lines through the wrong results <laughs> and then resubmitted <laughs> the doing, thesis. Really? <laughs> so but I was told, yes, George Ellis was looking at his thesis, and he told me that, that you know, he just scribbled out the things that were mm-hmm. <laughs> that were, were wrong and what was left seemed to be, or maybe he wrote something in mm-hmm. handwriting above it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what he wrote then was all right. mm-hmm unquestionably he did good work and he developed these ideas in ways that I hadn't done. Um, I'm never quite sure whether it told you much more than we knew already. See, I mean, I always felt that with with the black hole singularities. And if you have a collapse, collapsing universe with all sorts of irregular complications, these the singularities that you get in the black holes must be there. But it's not sort of a rigorous theorem so much. Mm-hmm. So he worked
0: out these other results, which were, were, impressive, were yeah. impressive. The contributions to our understanding of black holes made in the 1960s by Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking, in collaboration and separately, became legendary. It was not until the late 1970s that astronomers became truly convinced that black holes do indeed exist. That they could not produce a clear image of one that they could show to hardcore sceptics, including the authorities who administer the Physics Nobel Prize in Stockholm. The Swedes usually won't award their prize to a theorist until they have watertight confirmation of his or her conjectures. In April 2019, the Event Horizon Telescope at last gave us the first ever images of a black hole. As so often happens, objects and phenomena show up in the real world decades after theoreticians conceived them and even speculated about them in detail using physical principles and precisely formulated mathematics. It's surely now time that Penrose is awarded a well deserved Nobel Prize, perhaps shared with the fellow pioneer Roy Kerr. The late Stephen Hawking should also be given an honourable mention. Roger Penrose continues to work hard, developing his twister theory and thinking deeply about the application of mathematics to fundamental physics. He's a vocal critic of many modern ideas in physics, notably string theory and the concept of the multiverse. He sets out his objections to these and other aspects of modern mathematical physics in his popular book, Fashion, Faith and Fantasy, a challenging but rewarding read. Roger's views illustrate that fundamental physics, like every branch of science, always has distinguished naysayers. This is just as well as it keeps informed debate flourishing and keeps younger practitioners on their toes. Although the universe is speaking to us in data and mathematics, it's rare to find unanimous agreement on what it's telling us.